The 90s produced a gush of killer music fanzines that operated under the shadow of bigger names like Motor Booty and Your Flesh. A personal favorite was Tim Ellison's Rock Bag out of San Diego. It was digest-sized, unassuming, and totally unique. Somehow Tim managed to be inspired by Richard Meltzer and yet sound nothing like Byron Coley. Among underground rock writers, Tim stuck out like John the Baptist. He occupied his own unique corner of the rock rate universe where visitors were treated to his idiosyncratic and far-out musings on psychedelia and color, cartoon music, and space rock. Tim's touchstones were first-rate and eclectic as heck. No Wave, Bubblegum, The Gories, The Verlaines, Red Crayola, Royal Trucks, Stereolab, The Seeds, The Fall, and always The Beatles. A change of name in the late 90s to modern rock magazine signaled a shift to a more analytic style dominated by a beefier record review section. Tim stopped publishing in the early 2000s, but he still occasionally throws in his two cents at his blog This I Heard, and more recently on Facebook. I'd interviewed Tim way back in 2000 for my old zine, and it was great to catch up with him. So I feel like the Beatles is probably a good place to start with you, Tim. Is it possible to overrate the Beatles? 100% yes. If you think of like Sinatra, Elvis, Beatles, right? Those are the ones that are grouped together where there was like the mania and everything, right? If you look at that group, there's a, a conspicuous absence of people of color in that group. I think the Beatles... The scope of their fame, their continued ubiquity, like, you know, it should always at least be considered, you know, in terms of like white privilege, you know, as as far as their music, I think I've been, I've actually been rereading the Mark Lewison biography. Are you familiar with that at all? No. Mark Lewison is like this Beatles scholar. He's been doing this project where he's going to do a Beatles biography that's three volumes. So the first volume is out and it's really good. And, you know, I think rereading it again, one of the things that comes out in that book is the scope of the Beatles' roots. You know, it's often talked about when you're talking about the Beatles story that they learned their craft when they went to Hamburg, Germany, right? And they had to play X number of hours every night in the club. Mm -hmm. But uh, Lewisohn goes into more detail and he shows you that they were, you know, even when they were home in Liverpool in their early years, they were playing like every day. So they, and they were a cover band, you know, so they, it, and the book goes into the scope of like what they actually played, what they actually liked and, and what they learned how to do. So I think the Beatles are a, a group that like um, their roots, their music comes from a tradition. And so I, maybe it's possible that their, um, their ingenuity maybe gets overrated because I see them really as being rooted in the tradition. And then, you know, I think they should also be looked at in the context of their peers that there were a lot of, as far as rock music, I think that there were a lot of really great bands at the time, comparable, you know, and bands that did things that they couldn't do or didn't do. Do you think archival releases in the past 15, 20 years have helped us appreciate who some of those peers are and some of their accomplishments? Oh, yeah. Even established bands like 
you know, there were things that the Rolling Stones and the Who and the Yardbirds and all these other bands brought to the table that were separate, you know, you know, they, they had uh, a comparable level of talent and ingenuity and charm. From that era, who would you say are ones that were blind spots for you that you now appreciate or appreciate more, didn't value maybe as much as you ought to have? That's a great question. I don't know. I I think at times I started, as far as like rock music, there were periods where I started to become aware of like uh, bands from other parts of Europe, the Dutch bands, for example. At some point, I think like people in my group of friends or people in the fanzine community, you know, became aware of like the German bands from the late sixties. Right. And then I used to buy a lot of like compilation albums by that were made by record collectors. So, you know, you'd be like, if you listen to like pebbles or something, you know, you would like be amazed that there was a band from like middle America that were like, you know, they had two singles and like, they were just like incredibly awesome. So when and why did you start Rock Mag, Tim? Yeah. So I was writing record reviews probably about a year before I started the zine. I had just been reading fanzines for a number of years and I was trying to remember, I think I remember first when I was in high school, like buying uh, magazines that were were obviously done on a lower budget, you know, that I would find in a, like an independent bookstore or record store or Tower Records or somewhere. I remember getting this magazine that I bought because it had an interview with the Minutemen and I was like still in high school. So I was reading fanzines and... You know, I, when I was, I started Rock Mag when I was, I guess, 24. So when I had been in college previously, I just got really into like underground rock music and bands that released records on independent labels. Um, and so I was reading a lot of the fanzines that were about that music. And I think I wanted to at a certain point, I wanted to like, I thought, well, maybe I have something to say about this too. So I, I wrote some record reviews originally, I think in 1991. And my original plan was, um, maybe I'll just send them to some of these scenes that I read. So the second batch that I wrote, I sent to Mike McGonigal, Chemical Imbalance. And he printed them. And I was just, and I was just like, I was so elated over this, right? And so I was going to continue writing for him. And as, as it turned out around that time, he stopped doing that magazine. So yeah, I ended up doing my own fanzine around that time. You seem to have like a specific agenda. You seem to have like a specific purpose, not just, I'm just going to do a fanzine for kicks, but... Do you think there was some intentionality with what you were trying to accomplish? Just that I wanted to share my ideas about like why I liked certain records, I think. 
Yeah, I don't know is that there was necessarily more of an a, agenda than any other, you know, person who was writing as a critic did. Although, I guess I wrote sometimes on broader topics of like, I was interested in rock music as a kind of continuum that was something that was evolving. So part of, I think, what I was talking about in the magazine was how do I see, like, is this still a living form? Is it still evolving? Um, And what are the records that are, like, keeping me interested in it? So, yeah, I, you know, maybe that was part of my thing was that I was talking about, hey, you know, like, this is, this is something that I love and that I'm hoping is still like a living art form that's evolving. Yeah, it seemed in the early issues, there's definitely like this meta quality about examining rock music as a what is rock music and maybe defining it. Yeah, for sure. And I think I, for me, it was that, you know, rock music can be, it can go in lots of different directions. It can be a lot of different things that it kind of has a foundation as like beat music, a certain ensemble type, electric guitars, drums, you know, whatever it is. Um, But that there was this tradition of, bands, you know, going back to the beginning of rock and roll that brought something interesting and took the music in a, you know, in a new direction, maybe. In your first issue, there's some references to Joe Carducci's book, Rock and the Pop Narcotic, which is coming from, I think, another place, which is more, I guess the word rockist fits there, conceiving of rock in more narrow terms. Would you say you were sort of pushing against that restrictive definition of rock to something more inclusive and expansive? I seem to recall, yeah, that um, I haven't read that book since that time, really. But um, I think maybe I was, because that book had been out, you know, not that long at that time. Maybe I was um, countering some of the arguments in that book a little bit that if you think of like 60s rock music or rock as it's defined in Meltzer's book, you know, that it was the Velvet Underground, but it was also the association, you know, and I don't know like if Carducci would have thought of the association as rock music or if, you know, as far as like what I was writing about in rock mag, I don't know, like, would he have thought of the Verlaines as rock music? I'm not, I'm not sure. I, like I said, I haven't read that book um, in uh, quite a while. So, I think you would probably see them in more pop terms, whereas your definition of rock encompasses bands that have that pop influence or sound, but are still grounded in the rock tradition. Yeah. And, you know, one thing that I realized at a certain point, I, I at some time, point, like in the early 2000s, I started listening to like 80s music again, like 80s new pop music, new wave music. And one thing that I realized is like, uh, I don't know, like take a group like a flock of seagulls, for example, like, I mean, there's a lot of energy in their music. There's like the, you know, the drummer is hitting the drums hard. So <laughs> like exactly how am I distinguished? Am I saying, no, that's not rock music, you know, why? 
I think that generosity also sort of infuses your writing too. Can I read a quote from you from uh, from your first yeah. issue? <laughs> sure, of course. I don't know what you'll make of it, but I'm going to read it to you anyway. Rock as the spirit of life cannot be defined dynamically in specifics, but only alluded to in a subtle maze of metaphysical jargon. Okay, well, I don't know what the last part of that is about, but the first part of that is exactly what we were just talking about. Cannot be defined by like a certain set of dynamics, you know, that the Stooges are rock music, you know, and the raspberries are pop. It's too simple. It's too restrictive. It's too easy to just say, oh, that's pop. Yeah. And I don't remember exactly what the pop narcotic argument was, but I don't look at pop as a narcotic or like, I don't, you know, that people are hypnotized by, (laughs) you know, yeah. So rock music you know, in that first issue, I was talking about, gosh, uh, Shonen Knife. The groups that I liked that I really wrote about a lot were groups that I thought, you know, I didn't like them because necessarily just because of their energy or, you know, I liked that they were, uh, like we were talking about, that they were bringing something to the table. They were... Um, I felt, you know, like keeping the music alive. From the quote I mentioned, there's a term metaphysical jargon that's at the end there. And one thing I've noticed in your writing, Tim, is there's references to spirituality and seeing rock music in spiritual terms. Rock has meant a lot to you. Is that fair to say? Yeah, for sure. Um, Sometimes I feel like the beauty of something that I'm listening to is like so awesome that, you know, I, I think of like this, the spiritual aspect of it, you know, or that, I don't know, people will talk about like the magic of music or something. I'm a musician myself. And, you know, sometimes you come up with something and it's like, wow, where did that come from was that like a gift yeah just inspired for sure and the experience of listening to things that you know i don't i don't know i remember you know everybody has a different brain and a different kind of emotional response to music but i have some really indelible memories of like early childhood of like really being moved by things that i just happened to hear you know, maybe like things that my parents played or things I heard on the radio. Like, I still remember those things, you know, from some of my earliest memories, four or five years old, just really being affected by music. Wow. Do you remember what some of those records or artists or sounds were? (laughs) Wow. This is like, it's actually kind of hard to talk about because it gets personal. But I remember at probably four years old, the song Leaving on a Jet Plane by Peter, Paul, and Mary. Like, that song just devastated me, you know? And I related it to, like, I had this idea of, like, being separated from my parents and that that song kind of, I, you know, I didn't, I don't think I really, I understood that the song was about, like, leaving and goodbyes, yeah, I had a number of experiences like that as a, you know, some of my earliest memories. We're talking about religious, spiritual sort of feelings. 
reading Rock Mag, you write like someone who had a road to Damascus experience with Richard Meltzer's book, Aesthetics of Rock. Can you talk a bit about his influence on you? Yeah, I'm, I'm glad to. That book, I feel like he talked about the things that people don't normally talk about with music. It, he... And part of what he did was a, a little bit of like kind of amateur musicology. So that was interesting to me. I was studying music at university when I read that book. But he was also, that book, I think he describes it as like one of the most inside of it books uh, of, you know, that that someone has done like he's living inside of that music you really get that sense and that like he's describing a world you know and that was kind of like what my experience of music was and really continues to be to a, a certain extent I think you know in the magazine sometimes I'm talking about like the record universe or like it's like living inside of that world and like that it's like it's a I think what Meltzer is trying to describe in the book is like how enchanted that world is. I was also really inspired by Meltzer as a writer because I think he was influenced by visual art. He was, you know, he was a philosophy guy, but he, I believe he minored in visual arts in college. And I think he thought of pieces of writing as like art objects. And that was like, that was the thing that inspired me uh, that I, I wanted to, you know, not just like write a review, but like do a piece where the structure of the piece of writing, that the structure itself was interesting or was one of your reasons for why you wanted to write. The first, I was talking about that I had some record reviews that were in chemical imbalance and two of them were like really long pieces that I wrote, you know? And um, Mike actually published one of them. It was a piece on boredoms and uh, ruins, those Japanese groups. Uh, he actually published one of them as like a feature article. And then with the the zine, I was writing like short essays. The first couple issues of the of Rock Mag were mostly like short essays that I had just kind of started writing just because I was, I don't know, thinking about those subjects. Um, I didn't necessarily actually think I was going to do a fanzine at first. I actually thought I might write a book at one point. But yeah, those essays, which all kind of followed one from the other, those ended up being the the main content of the first couple issues of the fanzine. Looking back at some of those essays now, I've been I've been rereading them. And I think the context of Rock Mag is the best home for them. They wouldn't make as much sense in another fanzine. But I think having these things, as you say, that kind of follow each other, that are on these very like particular themes like color in music, uh, the possibility of anger, like conveying anger in music and the way you play a guitar or bash a drum, for example, they just seem so idiosyncratic and personal. And like you're entering this aesthetics of rock, like kind of rich self-contained universe with its own rules and grammar. 
and it would just seem so foreign in just as a side thing in chemical imbalance or forced exposure of your flesh. But in its own thing, like you said, it feels like this artistic statement that you're making as like Rock Mag is some kind of artistic object. Well, man, thank you so much for saying that. And I think that to the extent that those early writings were successful, I'm glad that that, that was maybe a part of the, the charm of those early issues. It, it was certainly fun. You know, I hope they can they convey a spirit of fun. Um, I hope that the universe is not, I don't know. I mean, I did get some good response, you know, to it. It seemed like people like enjoyed that whole, whole, I don't know, maybe, um, experience of, of reading what, you know, what I was doing there. I'm one of those people. Absolutely. It's just this immersive world. Whenever you pick up an issue of rock mag. Awesome. You were up to something serious, but you also just mentioned humor as well. Is that something that was intentional, that was taken from Richard Meltzer? Yeah, I think so. Um, that, you know, like not taking it too seriously, or that I could be goofy with the structure of the writing, or, you know, have goofy graphics or something. I mean, that's part of the fun of fanzines, really. Were you trying to be provocative in some of the things you were saying? In one of your issues, you had an article on Emerson, Lake and Palmer as a no-wave band. How serious was that? Were you half serious, 75% serious, totally serious? Yeah, maybe 75% is, uh, is fairly <laughs> accurate. Um, I, so I was really, um, no-wave was like, obviously, like the, I wrote about it a lot in, the, in, in some of the issues. It was... It was something that I was really into, I think, because those bands, and especially I look back on it now, especially like Mars and DNA and um, the uh, the the group Ut. I think, but like those, in retrospect, those are my favorites. I really liked it that it was like this music that was kind of blank, that it didn't necessarily have to have meaning. Or, you know, that it was, it was sound also. I like that aspect of it, that, you know, it wasn't chords and harmony and structure, that it was, it was more kind of sound. I liked the repetition in it. And I think there, I actually listened to the first Emerson, Lake and Palmer album just recently. And I, I was remembering some of like, because some of what they do is this kind of it's it's it is repetitious um the notes are not necessarily important so much as just like i don't know like a riff as a kind of gesture like like there's a little bit of randomness to what they do so i i you know it was just kind of exploring a band that like no one i knew listened to you know but then it was uh, I don't know, finding things to like about them. They're not my favorite group in retrospect, but um, yeah, I do think that, you know, their like faster, harder music does actually, you know, have some commonality with the, you know, post-punk stuff. You had a pretty lively letter section in the zine. 
and you had especially an ongoing discussion with the guitarist writer Alan Licht. How did that start? So actually, uh, you might be interested in this. My favorite fanzine of all time was uh, Frank Kogan's fanzine, Why Music Suck. Have you ever heard of Frank Kogan or that zine? His name is familiar, but I've not heard of that scene, no. It goes back, I think, to the late 80s. It was this eight and a half by 11 sheets of paper, Xeroxed and stapled zine with all text. And Frank would do like a little doodle on the cover and it said, why music sucks. So, and the whole zine, Armin, was it so... He would write this opening essay, um, this, you know, long essay. And it was, and this was a big inspiration for me with Rock Mag too, was that it was building on what had been in the previous issue. And then you could write in to Why Music Sucks and you could have up to 700 words and he would print what you wrote and then maybe he would respond after it. So... When I first read this zine, and there were people, like there were mainstream critics that participated in this. Um, Kogan, um, I don't know, I think of him as being part of this group of critics that included Chuck Eddy. But like he had like Simon Frith writing in. I think Chris Gow wrote in. And like some fanzine people. I think there was a time where like Stigliano and Byron Coley wrote into this thing. So my letter section was always hoping to like have as great a community as Kogan did that he pulled together for that zine. And Alan actually wrote for Why Music Sucks. So I think that was how I first became aware of him. And then I had the Love Child EP. So like, oh, and he wrote for Stigliano also. I I may have just sent Alan a copy of the zine at some point. And yeah, he was awesome. He would write, you know, like, um, you know, he w- he really engaged with me. So that was a lot of fun. Actually, my band played a show with Love Child once too. Um, what he said, he's a great guy. Tell us about your band. It was the Nephews, right? Yeah, so that was my band from when I was in high school. And actually, um, me and a friend of mine started it. We both wanted to like be in a band and write songs, going back to when we were in middle school. So we had that name from when we were like 13. When we were in, I graduated from high school in 86, when we were in high school was when we really had the band going for the first time. And we were kind of REM-ish. This is mid-80s. Maybe a little kind of Paisley Underground-ish. So it was really cool because like in Southern California at the time, there was this whole like mod, garage, psych, you know, like 60s oriented scene. It was very fortunate for us because we like got involved in that. So we were, you know, we were like still in high school and we were playing like these cool club shows with like bands from L.A. and stuff. We opened for Rain Parade once. I think we were like 17 or 18. We almost got to do a record with Greg Shaw. Do you know Greg 
Shaw at all. He was a rock writer, and then he ran like Bomp Records. Bomp, absolutely. And who, who put the Bomp? Yeah. Yeah, Greg used to book shows at this club called The Cavern in Hollywood, and we played there a number of times. And we were talking with him like we almost, like he wanted to do a record. It didn't end up happening. The the nephews continued, um, the drummer, uh, Charlie Brownell, and I kept the band going. And then we had a nice period from about 92 through 96 where we were really active. We had an album on sympathy for the record industry. Yeah, I've got it. You have the Nephews album? I have the CD, absolutely. It's good. I played about once a year. There's some good songs on there. Oh, that's awesome. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, that was our kind of 90s era band. And actually, we've been playing again. Uh, the new version is called The Nephews and a Niece. That, that 90s album is up on our band campsite, along with some of the 80s era recordings. And then we have two new singles. Oh, that's amazing. You guys opened for Shonen Knife once? Yeah, that was, I think, Armin, when they were signed to Virgin. Um, I think that Rock Animals album was out. So they were touring. I remember, like, the Virgin Records guy who was with them, you know, on the tour. We talked to him a little bit, and he was talking about that he tried to get them to open on the Rolling Stones tour, but it didn't. He was telling us this. Um, the new band, man, we're just kind of doing it little by little. Um, I have some songs that I've written through the that we haven't recorded yet because we're kind of on hiatus, obviously, with the, the pandemic. I'm really glad to be doing it again um, and, you know, getting to play out a little bit and, um, getting going again with the songwriting. I think it's one of your last issues of Modern Rock Magazine, Tim, where the writing takes on this kind of existential tone. I'm just going to read a quote from, I think, issue eight. And you wrote, perhaps more than ever, rock appears to barely exist. This magazine continues on to discuss what is left and to hope for the future. You know, one of the things that I was writing about in those later issues was I felt like Band, rock bands that have become popular, like I'll just use like Guns N' Roses as an example. Like I felt like, man, this this music, I don't know, bands um, are becoming super popular or Red Hot Chili Peppers or something. And I didn't really feel with a lot of these bands they became like mega popular. That it it was music that was rooted in like the rock tradition and then i thought well this music is now getting codified as rock music it's but it's something else it's not what i was i don't know what i was interested in so i think some of that was happening at the time and honestly now it's 2021 and for me now man, I don't know that it does exist that much or like, you know, like the tradition that I was, uh, I was writing about, um, apart from like, I listen to records by people my age or older. Like, I think like Paul McCartney's recent albums are really good or like 
I like Jonathan Richmond's recent albums. I don't know. These are things that are part of the aesthetic lineage that was of interest to me. I'm not sure how much it's coming from young people right now, but that's okay. You know, I, I you know, it, um, I'm not, I, I don't want to lament like something. It's just my personal taste. Is that why the mag ended or just other life circumstances? You just stopped publishing after issue nine. Well, I'm not sure, Armin. It might have been that like there weren't that many records that I wanted to write about to fill up another issue. I started writing music blog in 2003, so that's pretty shortly after. And blog writing was um, appealing to me because it was like, you know, the immediacy of like publishing something and... And also that it was online, so there was a potential for a more interactive experience with people commenting. Um, you know, I've also participated like in message board writing. I I participated on the I Love Music message board for many years. Yeah, and you know, it goes back to wanting to have like a more interactive community. <laughs> you know, like like uh, like Frank Kogan, why music sucks. Do you still keep up with that blog, Tim? This I heard. I occasionally have an idea for a song that I want to write about. That um, I'll just explain it briefly. That the that blog is like it will be uh, an entry will be about a single song. So it's and it's it, it's a little bit technical. It it deals with like song structure. It deals with harmony. No, I haven't been doing it too much. Um, but I feel like there's you know, over the years that there ended up being like a fairly substantial amount of writing on there. So I'm happy with it, you know, to just exist um, as it is, you know, even if I'm not adding more to it. I don't know. It feels like it's lost in the internet void a little bit. It would be nice, you know, if like I heard from people that like, or like, oh, I liked what you wrote about this. You know, it happens from time to time. And lately, you've been doing some video reviews, Tim, on Facebook. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so um, they're called, the title of like the video series is called Physical Formats. So it's about uh, involving yourself with music through physical mediums. So like I still collect records. Yeah, um, so like I'll just talk about like records, like I like how records sound or like what I've been listening to, what I've bought recently. Uh, yeah, that's been fun. It's it's uh, it's given me a context to talk about some things, you know, like some records that were just on the shelf and I hadn't thought about for a while, and you know, to share some thoughts about them. How do you feel about some of the bands that you were championing in Rock Mag, Tim? I wonder how you feel about Stereolab these days. They were, I think, a real phenomenon. I don't know. I, I guess I, I kind of wondered at the time, like, to what extent they were kind of a game changer for the that kind of, like, underground rock milieu that MyZine was kind of a part of because they were, well, here it is again, Armin, you know, pop elements. 
and also, but like they were, I, I, it would have been hard for people to ignore them because they were so good. Like, and they were, they also had these elements of like real underground stuff, like Noi, you know? So yeah, they were so um, smart and so precise in what they did. And man, when they, you know, made that shift to major label, like they just went for it. That Mars Audiac Quintet album, I think that's like just an incredible album for them to take that leap, you know, that they took into like how how intricate their songs became as compositions and as recordings. So sometimes major labels can be a good move for a band artistically. Well, and I don't know if you were going to ask me about Royal Trucks, but that's another example of a band that was on this trajectory where their their songs were becoming more elaborate and they were starting to allow themselves to go in the direction of like high fidelity and, you know, like professional equipment. And when they made that leap, I think that the first Virgin album, thank you, I think that's their best album. That was like the peak of that trajectory. Yeah, those are strong songs, and the guitar playing is really good on that album. Yeah, and they seemed like they were really like inspired creatively and aesthetically. They were a, a band that was like in their own world, you know. Like, that, like nobody did what they did. They they, they introduced that you know in a way like like Stereo Lab. They were introducing. I don't know, like seventies. Uh, you know, like there. You'd read an interview with them, and they were talking about we like Mountain, or they. Yeah, they were another band that was like stretching the envelope. Yeah, not afraid to bust out some classic rock moves. Uh, no doubt, you know, and but taking advantage of the opportunities that 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 incorporating that. Um, gave them to like, I don't know, do some pretty incredible things. How about the Verlaines? I think you likened them once to the 90s version of Arthur Lee's Love. The Verlaines was, um, you know, they had records going back to the 80s. I was aware that people like in the fanzine community would write about them. I didn't really know anything about them, but they played at a local club one night. I went to the show and man, I was dumbstruck by what they did. Uh, the singer-songwriter Graham Downs, that guy has a doctorate <laughs> in music, you know? Like, and but their music is so subtle. Yeah, so the last Homestead album, Some Disenchanted Evening, and then they got signed to Slash, uh, the Ready to Fly album. Those records are, I'm trying to remember, they I think like one of the things about Arthur Lee and Love, maybe this is why I was making that comparison, a record like Forever Changes or uh, For Sale, that those love records are, they have a certain like serenity to them and a, a subtlety to like how good exactly is this songwriter. 
I think the the subtlety was the connection I was making with the Verlaines. There's like a pastoral quality to uh, to both those bands, I think. And uh, yeah, a lot going on underneath the surface. Yes, structurally, um, for sure. While we're talking New Zealand, how about Dead Sea? That was a band, uh, another one uh, where I felt that they were, I just liked um, the kind of, in a way, I think the, when I was talking about No Wave earlier, the kind of void of that music, um, that it was just sound, you know, even though uh, some of the No Wave music was maybe a little aggressive or dissonant, and that I think that was true of Dead Sea also. I think um, I always appreciated kind of the, the peacefulness of that music, um, the zen of the music, maybe, um, that it was, uh, I don't know, like I'm, I'm someone that like one of the things about music that I think about a lot or I know is like part of the, the appeal is like, I like sounds, you know, I like the way things uh, sound or I like um, just listening to, you know, maybe like a, a 12 minute Dead Sea song where like nothing really happens. Yeah, there's something cathartic about a good Dead Sea song. Yeah, or even just kind of serene. Yeah, absolutely. Tim, before we wrap up, are you up for a quick lightning round uh, of rapid fire questions? Oh, of course. Hackamore Brick or The Modern Lovers? Hackamore Brick, because that album is uh, a marvel and maybe a little more detailed than the first Modern Lovers album. Yeah. Sonic Youth or Live Skull? I'm going to go with uh, Thalia Zedek era Live Skull, although Daydream Nation is a really great album. Agreed. Cheater Slicks or The Gories? Uh, Gories. I saw the Cheater Slicks once. Um, I, I never got into them as much as I got into the Gories. The Gories are, oh my gosh, uh, the second and third Gories albums are like, they were, for me at the time, the early 90s, some of the most like expansive rock music, that, you know, like, and Mick Collins, like, he still does stuff like that, like the Dirt Bombs, you know, like the Bubblegum album that he did or the album where they do covers of like Detroit techno songs, like it all gets incorporated. And the Gorys were subtle, I think, in how they did that. Yeah, they're amazing. Black Flag or The Flesh Eaters? Um, wow. I think I'll go with equal. Um, like, I like Rise Above as much as I like some of those, like, really incredible tunes that I don't... Neither of those bands were, like, bands that I really got into, but I, there are those SST compilations of the Flesh Eaters. There are some songs on there that are just, like, superlative. Rise, rise Above is superlative also. Sweet or Slade? Uh, Slade is a blind slot spot for me. Um, sweet, boy, some pretty, uh, like, I, I actually was listening to Desolation Boulevard recently, 
Fox on the Run is, uh, it's a song that, I, like, obviously I'm tongue-tied talking about it. <laughs> I don't know what to say. Like, it's, it, you know, I grew up in the 70s. I was a kid in the 70s. Like, somehow that song, like, it encompasses, like, my experience of the 1970s or, or some of it, at least. No, they're they're amazing. Though I love Slade too, the 70s Slade stuff. And those vocals are incredible. I don't know how he does it. Naughty's a great singer. Yeah, I, I, I have to rectify my, my blind. <laughs> no, you're good, you're good. Last one, Monkees or 1910 Fruit Gum Company? Without hesitation, the Monkees. The Monkees, you know, it took me a little bit of time to, I, so I got a copy of the fourth Monkees album, the Pisces Aquarius album when I was in high school. And I was like, okay, I'm listening to the Monkees. Um, this is a pretty good record. You know, I, I, but over the years, like, I don't know how many times I've listened to that. And just like that music is, is a big part of my life. I was talking about it with somebody when Peter Tork died, you know, like I, I said, I, I was trying to talk about my feelings about it. And I just, I realized like the monkeys music has been a part of my life. Like that's been a continuum. I actually like, I still buy monkeys records. I got one of the later ones, the monkeys present when they were just a three piece. It's a great album. Well, there you have it. We started the interview with the Beatles and we ended with the Monkees. A big thanks to Tim for joining us and thanks to you for listening. If you'd like any scans of Tim's Modern Rock Mag, drop me a line at Twitter. It's RockRitPod. Feel free to follow us there. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave a review or a rating. Let somebody know. We'll see you again in a couple of weeks when we're off to New Zealand. Bye.